Let's open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, it is our privilege to gather here, to get to study your word, to get to fellowship with one another, and to have your spirit to guide us all along the way. We ask that we would feel the closeness of your presence today, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, and that that would prove for our salvation, Lord, as we are transformed into your image, out of the image of the things of this world, which are corruptible and passing away, and into your image, which is eternal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we'll be studying the book of Joel today. It comes after Daniel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. But before we get into that, I want to ask you some questions. What happens when God reveals himself to man? When God reveals himself to man, is it for man's good or is it bad for them? Mm-hmm. The bad people go, oh my gosh, let the rocks fall Yeah, you're exactly right, April. So when God reveals himself to us, there are both examples of that being a good thing and a bad thing. If we search the scripture, we will find that God revealing himself often means great blessings and comfort. We hear of you know, Emmanuel, God with us, a picture of God and his closeness to us. Or we speak with with fond thoughts of God walking with man in the cool of the garden or the future city, heavenly Jerusalem, where God will walk in our midst. These are examples of God revealing himself and it being for our blessing. Yet we also find in the revelation of God that we also find that God's revelation is a threat to man. Man is sinful and God cannot abide sinfulness in his presence. It is said that, um, that man cannot see God and live. We read over and over encou- encounters between man and the glory of God and the reaction of man is rightly to fall on his face as if dead in fear. And we read about the Holy of Holies in the temple where God's presence resides in a special way. And the penalty for entering into that place in an unlawful way is death. So we have there a number of examples, both for good and for bad, when God reveals his presence to us. Considering this, Where does the difference between these two outcomes come from? Why in some instances, if God reveals himself, it's for our blessing, and in others, if God reveals himself, it is for our condemnation? Your heart? heart? The Holy Spirit in your heart. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. thinking when Moses approached the burning bush, um, he was in awe, for sure, um, but he was blessed as well. Um, 
He was at that point, I think, to be judged a sinful man like the rest of us. Yeah. Um, but God had a purpose in revealing himself to him. Amen. So we we know that when God reveals himself and it leads to condemnation, it is because mankind is sinful. And God cannot abide that sinfulness in his presence. So when God reveals himself for blessing, is it because he's revealing himself to men who aren't sinful? No, they're all, we're all the sinful. Amen. Um, when, uh, what's the guy's name who appeared? <coughs> the angel appeared to the angel. God appeared to his wife first. Yeah, Manoah. Yeah. In Judges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was for blessing, but it was a startling experience for sure. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah, we can Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's not surprising to us that, that sometimes God, that God's revelation leads to man's condemnation. The surprising thing is that it ever leads to man's blessing if all of mankind is sinful. And so the the difference there comes down to the grace and mercy of God. That God in his the counsel of his goodwill decides to deal with some of mankind not according to their sins, but out of grace and mercy. And this is chiefly and most prominently connected with repentance and belief. That God extends this grace and mercy so that his revelation means blessing for those who have repented and believed in him. Not because they deserved it, but because his character is so wonderful that he delights in pardoning sin and blessing those who do not deserve it. And so we will see these ideas work themselves out as we study the book of Joel this morning. The book of Joel is a story of the relationship between man and God. And this story works out by focusing on the consequences, the impact of God's coming and his presence in the midst of man. Will the Lord's presence mean salvation for us or destruction? This is the, the people, the people of Judah in the story of Joel have sinned and so too have the inhabitants of the nations. Because of this sin, they deserve destruction for the Lord. Yet because of God's loving character, any who call upon the Lord will be saved and instead his blessing will His presence will mean blessings and salvation for them, security and great joy. So this is a a story of God and man. And as we read it, we need to keep an eye out for these themes of God's presence, his revelation and its impacts on mankind. So who is the author? Who is Joel? Son of Pethuel? <laughs> no. You remember him, right? 
We have very few details on who Joel is. We read in verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And that's about it. There's, there's no other mentions in scripture that I could find of who this Joel character was. But we know that he was given the word of the Lord to bring before the people. That means that he is a prophet of God. And this is a, a key detail, especially considering it's the only detail that we have about him. It's sort of like, <clears throat> how we read about Melchizedek in Genesis, and we have no details really about him before or after. We just have a character who who is in the story to fulfill this one purpose and then departs. It's the same thing with Joel. We do not know the other circumstances of his life or these other details. We simply know about a man who was appointed by God to bring his word before before his people, that he was a prophet. So in this story, we will read the writings of Joel as he prophesies before the people of God to help them understand their present circumstances, to help them understand what is coming ahead of them, and to call them to behave rightly towards their God. This is the the classic role of a prophet, to go before the people and bring the word of God. He is speaking to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah, that is the southern kingdom. If we remember, the people of Israel have been divided into two kingdoms, the the northern kingdom with its ten tribes and the southern kingdom with the the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Joel is a a prophet to this southern kingdom, um, or at least the people of it. The scholars are not exactly sure when this book is written, Um, Some people think that it it dates during the time of the two kingdoms, while others suspect that it's after the exile. But he is specifically writing to the people of the southern kingdom. And I've been struck as I studied this book in preparation, um, how beautiful this book is. Um, Literarily speaking, it's... Uh, poetic, it has some striking figurative language, um, all these beautiful uh, foreshadowings and allusions, and um, the structure of it is, is really um, quite spectacular. And it's, as someone who enjoys books and literature, it's wonderful to, to read the Word of God and see just how beautiful of a creator God is. He, he knows, he is the, the father of beauty in many ways. You know, all of our um, constructions that we make that are appealing are inspired by the God who himself knows how to write words and weave beauty together. Um, <clears throat> In many situations, he he uses 
uh, figurative language so that while his account is touching on historical events, that it is easy to take the event, the ideas of Joel and apply it to different situations. In a similar way to how we might hear, you know, a love song on the radio that's written in vague enough terms that you could apply it to your own personal mm-hmm. romance. The book of Joel is often couched in figurative language so that we could see our own situation in its same light and truths. And this is likely part of the reason that as we read Joel, we'll find very few specific details, very few um, historical narratives of, of specific events unlike some of the other prophets where we find very detailed accountings of what is going on. The book of Joel divides into three chapters, but I think it fits more properly into two primary sections. The first section is about judgment, being the the judgment of Israel in the past, and Warnings of coming judgment in the future. While the second section of the book of Joel is about vindication, about God making whole what is broken and righting wrongs in his gracious mercy. So let's start with the first section, judgment. Let's read... Verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. This is talking about the the magnitude of judgment that has fallen on them is, is to be a lesson for themselves and for future generations. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and its fangs the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. That is like a a betrothed whose husband is killed. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. 
Be ashamed, O tillers of soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. This is an account of what would be a, a famine brought about in Joel's time by swarms of locusts. But it is, is couched in these vague terms <clears throat> and using this figurative language of a, a nation and an army that are arrayed against Israel. We see that all of the sweetness and goodness that they enjoyed has been evacuated by this destruction. That anything that they were putting their, their hope or their pleasure in has been swallowed up to the last degree by the judgment of God. Mm-hmm. These <clears throat> God uses judgment, uh, uses locusts and famine to parallel the effects of sin in our lives. What ways do locust and famine so well parallel what happens when we fall into sin? What effects it has in our lives? Ask that again. Um, so why are locusts and famine such a great parallel to the effects of sin in our lives? Eats and takes away what should be there, and yeah. depletes and just takes and takes and takes until right. there's nothing. <clears throat> it robs of all sweetness. Mm-hmm. When you fall away from God, your soul starves. Yeah. Mm. Man shall not live by bread alone. Mm. I was picturing in my mind a few years ago when I was being devastated by. Gypsy moths and how they completely mm. destroyed trees, mm. yeah. and they died. They died because of it. You know, just they ate them when they got done what they liked to eat. They would go to other oh, things yeah. that they didn't like. But <laughs> it just trees. doesn't stop. There's no yeah. like, no limit. Yeah, it's like sin. They have to eat. Hmm. And so it becomes such a great parallel as as we see this that that sin eats up all the goodness that, that is there to enjoy. And it eats up to the last part over and over. It doesn't stop. And it, it, when its fullness has come, the, the proper mm-hmm. response is to lament and wail in shame. So this is the the judgment for sin. We see as as Joel highlights their drunkenness, as he calls them to be ashamed, and their culpability, their their guilt that has brought this destruction on them, is highlighted even more when we see that in the next part, Joel calls them 
to repentance. That this is not just a, a act of nature that has come upon them, but is the direct judgment of God for their sinfulness. Mm-hmm. We read in verses <clears throat> 13 and 14, this call to repentance. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Mm-hmm. Wail, o, o ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. That's the, the famine is so bad that they, they do not have the, the fruit to even be able to offer offerings and sacrifices to God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Notice he is calling for a fast in a time of famine. You You can starve because of the effects of your sin or you can reject the... The pleasures of this life as a, a lamenting, as a fast of repentance to your God. He's calling them instead of suffering for their sin to suffer in repentance and draw near. This lament, <clears throat> this uh, call to repentance is followed by a, a further lamenting of the previous destruction mixed with a discussion of the the imminent future destruction that is coming to them. Their repentance over their sin is to be a repentance of brokenness that sees the the wretched and miserable state that they're in. Mm -hmm. You cannot turn from your sin until you realize how bankrupt Mm -hmm. it is. Mm There is, there is no repentance that is separated <clears throat> from being able to look out at the effects of sin in your life as a field of devastation. <clears throat> and then it continues on from there to go into these promises of future judgment and devastation. Reread in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. <clears throat> For the day of the Lord is near. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them throughout all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. 
This is the day of the Lord that is coming. This is a, a foretelling of future destruction. As they sit in the middle of their current judgment, in the middle of famine and locusts, desolate, there comes promise of even more devastation. That what they, they should expect from the future is that God will make a complete end of them for their sin. Just picture fire before you and fire behind you. Yeah. There's no escape. You know, like stories of firefighters in fighting wildfires and getting surrounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our God is a consuming fire. Yeah. I just wonder if they had such a hard time with this because they had been impressed with the idea they were God's chosen people for so long. Yeah. They couldn't eat, they couldn't grasp it or understand it or believe it was going to happen. Yeah. And one of the things we'll highlight before we're done is the way in which Joel specifically shows that God has overturned their previous promises of blessing. Um, that they sit thinking that they they deserve certain things from God. And what Joel is telling them is you have already gotten a taste of what the presence of the Lord is going to be for you. It means your condemnation, you know, in this famine now. And when the day of the Lord comes and his presence is going to be fully revealed, it will be all the more worse for your sinfulness. So the reference to the before them, the land is the garden of Eden. So is that like what God gave them when they went into the land? Like this is Canaan and it's the land of milk and honey. And yeah. this is what, you, what happened. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. The, you know, because the the promised land is meant to be a picture of new creation. When God promises to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey in which he will be in their midst, you know, going before them and behind them. This is a, a, a type of Eden. It's a promise that's a taste of what they were supposed to have in the garden, that abundance. Um, so he's, he's recognizing that in the narrative of scripture and drawing it back forth to say, this was supposed to be a land that represents the, the blessed, you know, Eden, free from sin. And like the first Eden, this type of Eden is corrupted by sin and mm-hmm. is going to receive the same destruction. The, the day of the Lord, which should be a triumphant thing for the people of God, like this is the day that the Lord will come in power and make his presence known. Instead of being triumphant, it is for their destruction. You know, as we read in verse one, you know, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom. So let's take a look 
uh, what I was hinting at earlier, the, the way that in this whole first section of judgment, the, the punishment is, is calling forth this idea of overturning the blessings they've received from God. You know, we already talked about how the land of Canaan was, was supposed to be this land flowing with milk and honey, this picture of abundance. <clears throat> and the, then we read about all of the, the wine being dried up and the vineyards being laid bare, all of the things that were supposed to be the abundance of the land is now robbed from them. But also consider this, what other time do we know of where locusts are used as judgment from God? Exodus, yeah. Is it against the people of God, though? It's against Egypt, the, the, the people who are oppressing the people of God, their enemies. And we, so what we, we see being captured here is God is dealing with what were his people as if they are his enemies like Egypt. This is a powerful image to, to anyone who knows their Old Testament that you are as good as the Egyptians. And then we also read in one nine, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The, the temple, its offerings, the sacrificial system, these are blessings that God has given to Israel, setting them apart from other nations. And what does this famine do? It robs them of their ability to partake in these blessings, in their, in their special status. They don't even have the offerings to be able to worship God in the way that they've been allowed to, unlike the other nations. We, we see, we get a taste of just how deep and significant this judgment is. And how striking it would be to the people of this time hearing these words. So then what is the, the purpose of all this judgment? The judgment in the past and, and the judgment promised in the future. What is God teaching Judah when he sends these things to them? It's time to repent. Yeah. So we draw a valuable lesson from this that God uses judgment to call people to repentance. Mm-hmm. That the, the, the foretastes of judgment that we receive now and the warnings about coming judgment in the future, both of these exist to call us to repent from our sins. It's it's an amazing truth that we read throughout scripture that this is not just a this isn't just the judge of the universe coming to to his creation and saying you have failed and I'm letting you know that I'm going to destroy you. 
but that it is actually for the purpose of giving his people an opportunity to turn from their sins and turn to him. Yeah. Desiring that all should repent. If you have not been destroyed by God's judgment, that means he is giving you an opportunity to repent and receive his mercy instead. That's why even to the last moment, it is not too late to repent. Because until the final judgment comes, we have an opportunity to turn and trust. And anyone out in the world has that opportunity. Is that not the lesson of the thief on the cross? At least one. Yeah. He's not dead yet. It's not too late. He starts the day mocking. And at the end of the day calls out to his savior for salvation. And so <clears throat> this is a, a lesson that we need to carry with us and carry out to other people. That judgment, both felt now and warned of in the future, is an act of love from God to call people to repentance. When we preach judgment, it is not because we are harsh, unloving people, or perhaps it might be for us, but but it's not preached from the Bible out of the sake of harshness. It's preached out of love and warning to call people to repentance. It is amazing that the, the just and holy God preaches judgment not for our condemnation, but to lead to our salvation. And that's ultimately the whole story of scripture as we see the, the Old Testament picture so well the sinfulness of man under the law ultimately leading to the need for repentance and trust in Christ. This is a, a beautiful lesson of the Bible that is captured so well in, he, in this book. And in this section, repentance is the central part of the structure. You have judgment in the past, repentance, a uh, call to repentance and judgment in the future. That Sandwiching structure is a very common Jewish literary structure to highlight the thing of most importance. It is the thing in the middle. And that is a call to repentance. So the first section is about judgment. And the second section will be about God's vindication of his people. About how he makes their brokenness whole and rights wrongs for them. But before we, we go to that second section, <clears throat> we need to take a look at the passage that lies at the center of Joel. You know, we saw the, the center of the first section. This is the center of the whole book, sandwiched between judgment and vindication. <clears throat> and it answers this important question. Of how do we move from being the subject of God's judgment to the recipient of his salvation? And that is repentance. Let's read and see how it plays out. Joel 2.12 Yet, yet 
even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent, leaving a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Where is their God? This is repentance. This is the transition between judgment and vindication. It's the gateway between the two, and it is the heart of this book. That the people would see who God is, that he calls to them in the midst of this. That he declares his character, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. Isn't it interesting in verse 14 where it says they might be led and leave a blessing behind, and the blessing will be a grain offering and a drink offering that they can give to the Lord. Yeah. You know, just showing that that relationship has been um, has been brought back together. Yeah. You know, the worship practices are again welcomed by God. It's like that whole the whole cult of what they do is is going to be you know put back in place. The covenant, so mm-hmm. to speak, so that they can do those things. I love that verse there. Yeah, it, it's such a, where we pointed out earlier the way in which the desolation made them unable to yeah. offer these things. Yes. We now see the overturning of that in which God's redemption, a response to their repentance, restores that relationship. Where before you had the day of the Lord promising to Remove the Garden of Eden and leave in its path desolation. We now have the going of the Lord, removing desolation and leaving blessing behind. It's this this beautiful reversal that highlights just the the wonderful nature of our God. It's like spring. It's like spring all over again. Amen. <laughs> And see just <clears throat> how um, how real the repentance must be. Mm-hmm. Return to me with all your heart. Mm-hmm. For repentance to be true repentance, you must not hold back a bit of your heart from it. Do you think, it's interesting that, you know, as life goes on, we know ourselves better. It becomes sort of more of our known self, which we then plug back into that 
practice yep. of loving God, you know, with our whole heart, you know, because it's just just the way things are, the nature of things. Our, our, so many other variables and factors in our lives that sort of keep us from being our real and genuine self. And the more we could realize, become our real and genuine self, we continually are bringing that person, that self yeah. to God. Always. And and it's this this sense in which our first prom our promise in repentance that like I will come and follow you mm. is all encompassing. We make no caveats for this area's off limits mm. from my obedience to mm. you. Yet we spend the rest of our lives trying to live up to that promise of repentance mm. in the same way that in marriage. You promise, you know, to love and to cherish. You know, there's no no limit set to that. And yet you spend the whole of your marriage bringing different parts of yourself and your life into conformity with that promise. Return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. If there is no bitterness over sin, there is no true repentance. Mm. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What a what a incredible mm. statement. Mm. Mm. Rend your hearts. Mm. I mean, we, we all know what it's like to have been broken hearted by something at some point. Be broken hearted over your sin, over your distance from your God. Rend your hearts. Don't just externally show your sorrow, but live your sorrow in your deepest parts. It just seems that the external expression of repentance or rending your, <coughs> rending your garments <coughs> could be hypocritical. Yeah. And, yeah. And they were known for that. I mean... I've never rent my garments in sorrow. <laughs> oh, you should try it, man. You know, <laughs> might be cathartic. Maybe <laughs> some help to get started. <laughs> Use some scissors first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but there, there, I think there is a temptation to pageantry in mm. in the Old Testament with the rending of their garments. Mm. That they they have this zeal that that's manifested so externally, but is so lacking internally. Where they they can muster up all the show to to tear their garments, and yet where do they go right afterwards? Back to their sin. <clears throat> so this is the heart of Joel: repentance and the character of God that forgives sin. From there, we move on to section two, which is the vindication of God's people. And it all rests on the character of God. The product of this repentance is that God makes things right. He vindicates his people, not because they are righteous, but because he has made them righteous and thereby he can establish them. God undoes the penalties of sin. We read in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. It flows out of the character of God. It all rests on who he is. 
Let's see how he, he starts to undo the penalties of the previous judgment. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, the exact things that the earlier chapters show are lacking. And you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. It talks about the, the bark being stripped bare like a, uh, a virgin lamenting in sackcloth. You know, instead of being reproachful, laid bare, he is covering them like God covering Adam and Eve in the garden with the garments. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not. But before he was proclaiming, the day of the Lord will come and it will be for your destruction. Now it is fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before the the evil is being overturned. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. When, when it's when it's overflowing, you are wasting it on the ground mm-hmm. where before you suffered for your lack of it. Mm-hmm. Now you have enough to waste on the floors. Mm-hmm. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God overturns all of the penalties of sin in Christ. In him we are more than conquerors and we have all the abundance of God. Not just as a, a consolation for the evil, the, the suffering that we've been through, but, but in such abundance that everything we lost is undone by God's goodness. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wonderfully with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. My people shall never again be put to shame. Amen. (laughs) God is so merciful to people who deserve nothing, nothing. And and what, what a beautiful way in which... This is written so it is not just 
a historical account of, of something that happened, but that it is made to be a picture that we can grab and hold on to, that this is the promise of God, that one day he will fulfill all of this in Christ, in his second coming. But the blessing and the vindication does not stop with just God overturning the suffering. It continues on into God's presence in the midst of his people and his salvation for them. Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as it, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. We should recognize verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Where do we know it from? Romans. Romans 10, 12, and 13. For there is no distinction, both Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, as Paul references his Old Testament. This is the, the abundance that's pictured there. The spirit, which when this was first preached, they may not have known the, the, they didn't know the Trinity well enough to know that this spirit is God dwelling in their midst. But what a great promise that we can see now that in the final days, he pours out his spirit on all flesh. This is what we're the recipients of through repentance, through the grace of our God. And it is for all. He highlights this when he says even, uh, you know, he talks about the sons and the daughters, old men and young men, male and female servants, from the greatest to the least. The, the gospel opens up to everyone. And Paul rightly pulls that out in Romans 10 when he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is, It makes so much sense when we put the narrative of scripture together. When the people of God, by their sin, make themselves unfit for their special status, the blessing then goes out to the whole world. In in the previous times, the promise was for the Jews. But God shows that as they prove unworthy, the new promise goes out to all. We carry on from the the blessing of God in the midst of his people to God's vindication of his people by an ultimate destruction of evil. 
We read in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. For behold, in those days, at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. God sees every evil thing that is done and he will one day bring every last bit of it to account. When you are wronged, when you see wrong done, know that there will come a day when God vindicates it all. Jehoshaphat means that Yahweh judges. This is the valley of the judgment of Yahweh. And the the place that's actually called this is in the valley of Megiddo, which in the, the book of Revelations we hear as Armageddon or Har-Megiddo, the, the valley there. The, this is the foretelling of the day in which God will finally make his presence to be the, the full blessing of his people in saving them from every evil and the full destruction of those who array themselves against good. He goes on to to call the nations to war against them, to muster all of their might to try to array against him. Uh, verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of, draw, of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your swords into, pl- your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. And it goes on in, in such great, like vindicating verses to show that all of the power and might that all of the nations can muster is weakness before the God, before God. And they will be as wheat before the slaughter, uh, before the, the shearer. It cannot stand as a a valley of ripe grain to fall before the Lord. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision or the valley of judgment for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of judgment. God will be triumphant and he has called us by repentance that we might get to have that triumph be in defense of us and that we might get to share in his glory and victory, not deserving it, actually deserving the same punishment he is levying out, but being freed from it by his calling us to repentance and equipping us to believe. The book of Joel finishes with the blessing of God in the midst of his people. Verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy city, and Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers never shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, 
and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, the wa- and water the valley of Shittim. Sweetness blow, flows from the house of God, from Jesus, the word made flesh, and dwelt or tabernacled or housed among us. It might seem weird to use the word vindication for these events, to call these the vindication of the people of God. Vindication is a term that is usually used when you have been wrongly punished. You know, someone who's accused of a crime who didn't commit it, and eventually the courts vindicate him by proving that he was in the right. And if we know ourselves, we know that vindication doesn't belong to us because we weren't in the right. We we don't get to sit here and look out at the nations and say, I told you so. Mm-hmm. I made the right choice. Mm-hmm. And yet, it is vindication for the people of God. <clears throat> we... Uh, Verse 23 of chapter 2 reads, For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. What it is, is God makes us clean. He makes us right, even though we were wrong. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, so that we can speak of God's vindication As our vindication. So even though we are not the ones who get to stand in court and say, I did nothing wrong, judge acquit me. We can hold our heads as proudly as if that were the case, because in Christ, we are truly righteous, not just a picture of righteousness, but God actually makes us righteous so that we are partakers of his glory and can stand right beside him in vindication, like the saints who have been martyred, who cry out to the Lord to avenge them. What a beautiful thing God has done in using judgment to turn sinners from their sin. And to unite them to himself so deeply that his presence can dwell within their midst despite their former sinfulness. And that they might all reign triumphant on the end of days as as one body in Christ. Any final questions or comments? All right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father... We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Let us not forget who you are. Let us not forget who we were. And let us always look toward the end of all things in hope and in warning of what should come should we fail to be found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good job, brother.